Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy you're here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for the invite. We actually have three guests. So maybe we should start with you, Maria. Sure, absolutely. My name is Maria Costanzo Palmer, and I am a debut author, now recently represented by Leticia Gomez at Savvy Literary Agency. My writing partner, Ruthie Robbins, and I have been working on a narrative nonfiction manuscript titled On the Rocks, and it's basically chronicling the journey of my father, Joseph Costanzo Jr., in his rise to success as the owner of the highly acclaimed celebrity hangout, the Prima Donna Restaurant, through his sharp fall, which ended with a stint in federal prison. And we also have an agent, Leticia Gomez. My name is Leticia Gomez, and I'm in Texas. I'm in the Houston area. I'm the CEO and founder of Savvy Rary Agency. I've been an agent for about 15 years now. It's very important to me and always has been to bring culturally diverse voices to the forefront. And so I've specialized in nonfiction I specialize in the kind of book that Ruthie and Maria are writing, which is narrative nonfiction as well as memoir. Now, on the narrative nonfiction, I do both historical and contemporary. As I said, memoirs, I do a lot of self-help books for the adult market as well. Yay. Ruthie Robbins, my 45th year as an educator. I'm also a writer and an editor. I had grown up on the street where the restaurant was located, although it was a deli when I was growing up. So we saw the restaurant. I was with my sister and we were one of the first customers when there would only be eight or 10 customers a night. So I met the dad first, was very familiar with the building and the area. And then when Maria entered junior high, I was her teacher. And then I moved to the high school when she did. So I was her teacher a couple more times. We got to know each other well. And she was editor of the high school paper. So I'd work with her on that as well. Gosh, that makes my teaching heart like grow three sizes. <laughs> I love that so much. So would you like to talk a little about your submission process and things you learned along the way? Sure, absolutely. So our journey started about 14 years ago. And it was really a family history project. And soon after, based upon the stories that my dad was telling me, I realized that this was just a little bit more than just a family history project. He would say things like, I remember the time that Daniel Aiello came into the restaurant after he was filming Cemetery Club. And we sat down and had veal parmesan and talked about whenever he was a bus driver and I was a postal worker. Or I remember the time when the cops were on me and I was serving after hours and Johnny from the underworld brought in a stripper and then he left her there and I had to sneak her out without the cops noticing. So at that point, I decided to just use an old school tape recorder and to just capture some of these stories, knowing that eventually I wanted to write this book, but didn't quite know how at that point. And it was really a long process, but not a fruitful one at the time. And at one point, I really did give up. And I shelved the manuscript for three to five years and just let it collect some dust. 
And I tried during that time to improve my writing, to take some classes, to get some help, but nothing really gelled. And then Ruthie came along. (laughs) And yay. And as she had said before, Ruthie and I met whenever I was in sixth grade and she was my English teacher. And uh, she continued to be my teacher three to four times throughout my school career. She wrote my college recommendation letters, and I was friends with her oldest son. And we continued to be in touch some years ago, and I told her about the ambitions of me writing this book. And I shared with her some of these vignettes. And at the time, she was editing for some writers in a writing group in Buffalo, where she lived. And she took my material to the group, and they felt that there was a story there, too. And our partnership was essentially born at that time. I love that so much. And I actually loved how you started with this quote from your dad. And I want to talk to you both about what it was like writing via your father is a complicated thing to do. But then for Ruthie, actually having to edit someone's personal experiences about a family member might be difficult and interesting. But let's start with this quote, which I just love. Joseph Costanzo Jr. said, intangibles that enabled me to achieve my greatness also contained the seeds to my destruction. He sounds like such a profound and alive character anyways. But I know that when you write memoir and nonfiction, it can get a little complicated. Can you guys tell us about bringing this very complicated character to life. It was very complicated. At first, Joe was so happy to talk about anything positive and there was so much, but there was more to it. Well, okay, somehow you wound up in prison and there's been a lot of loss. And and my writer's group said, you can't just say it was the greatest and this person came in and we had all these great reviews and I I wound up in jail. Uh, It's not open anymore, but it really was the greatest. (laughs) It really was the greatest, but... It was very touchy to get that out of him. And sometimes I get out of it in one conversation. Sometimes Maria would talk to him. Sometimes I'd call him directly. And occasionally he would just say, I see. And then he revised the information to include more balanced, good, bad struggle. Other times hung up, didn't get much farther. We communicated so much if it weren't a pandemic the book probably wouldn't have gotten done because I wasn't working. So I did this maybe 10 or 12 hours a day. At one point I said to Maria, we usually text or talk, but we do emails too. And I said to her, how many emails do you think we have between us in the year? I forget what she guessed, but anyway, it was 12,000. Wow. way of communicating. The joke evolved too, because he's a strong Italian man from a family where your word went and nobody questioned you or anything. And then to put it all out there and become more vulnerable, that really happened more over the last couple of years. He changed and the story got better because we had more information. And Donna, his wife, would be in conversations with us. And sometimes you could tell they'd write things together. Maybe they didn't have an immediate answer when we talked about something that seemed to be missing. But then in a couple of days, they would come forth. It's really been um, a lot of closeness among us all. I feel like family. <laughs> I feel like our family. <laughs> did you write a proposal first and then send that out? Or did you write the whole book first and then send that out? How did that work? 
Our process was actually very interesting. This is our first book, but I don't know, Ruthie, if you would agree or disagree, but it feels like our third or fourth instead of our first because we've written it so many times and so many different ways. We started with my perspective, then we had a blend of my perspective mixed with his perspective and then back to his perspective. So it really was an untraditional kind of process. I congruently was writing the manuscript and the proposal. I was always trying to become a better writer. So I was always taking classes. I was always trying to learn the things that I didn't know, because let's face it, what you don't know, you don't know, and you can't pretend. So there are resources. Manuscript Academy is a perfect example of some awesome resources that are out there to help writers. But I was taking classes and I was trying to just really wrap my head around what would be needed. So we did both at the same time. Hence, it took us a long time. It took us much longer than probably the average writer to get this down. But the good news is we have the proposal completely finished. We have the manuscript completely finished. And out of it, I'm probably going to have a second book because all of my perspective pieces that we extracted, I saved and I've been working on a second piece based upon my perspective and the things that I've learned because I answered the knock on the door whenever the feds came looking for my dad. Tell us what made this project a yes for you. I met Maria through a writer's conference and when she pitched to me, I was immediately drawn to the story for a lot of reasons. First of all, I liked her. Okay. She, I liked her personality. I liked her demeanor. Something about her just told me this pretty lady can write. And then the next thing that caught me was the title, the working title, On the Rocks, hmm. which was very intriguing to me. I love drinks. Okay. <laughs> to, I love to have drinks <laughs> on the rocks. So to me, it just sounded like a really cool commercial sounding title, a very marketable title to publishers. And so that was the second thing that I liked. But then once that she got into her pitch about what On the Rocks was about, then as she was talking, I says, this is exactly the kind of book that I do well with, which is narrative nonfiction. If the writing is as good as she talks, I'm probably going to be in for this. One of the other things that attracted me about it is because it really is one of those stories that will lend itself to adaptation for film and television. I can definitely see a Netflix series being created out of it. And that's one of the reasons that I really love to represent narrative nonfiction and memoirs, because it's precisely the two genres where film and television production companies are tapping into. All those put together just told me that this was going to be a high quality submission. And so I asked her to send me the proposal. And so did you not go on a full submission? You met her and that was it? It was a very interesting submission process for us. I'm a grant writer. That's my nine to five day mm -hmm. job, as well as being a mom and a rescue dog mom too. Mm -hmm. But because of my grant writing experience, I'm very much into deadlines and the Excel spreadsheet and we track everything and we submit. And we did try the traditional submission path where we were querying and not really achieving fruitful results. And I just know my strength and my strength is one-on-one -on -one 
meeting with people. So whenever I saw that there was an opportunity to, to do that through a writing conference, and obviously everything this last year has been online and has allowed you to do it from your basement, and it's very easy. So I thought, you know what, I want to try this because if I get in front of somebody and I can show them how passionate I am about this project, I think that first of all, that's going to give them a sense of who I am because I'm the type of person that works really hard. I don't stop. I always laugh whenever writers say, revise and rewrite, that's the worst thing that you could hear. <laughs> Ruthie and I, we probably drive Leticia crazy because we just keep on revising. <laughs> Even <Stop>. whenever. <laughs> They're gonna revise until I'm just ready to start submitting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We are always revising. We are always thinking of ways to sharpen it, to strengthen it. What else can we do? What else is going to set us ahead? So that whole revise and rewrite situation, whenever people get those dreaded words, we put that on ourselves all the time because we want to just keep on pushing ourselves to be better. And whenever I got into the conference circuit, I realized that was my strength because although we weren't incredibly successful in the traditional querying route, our run rate for live pitches was about 93% request rate. Wow. That's really high. Yeah, this is really interesting. And I want to go back to Letitia. You talked about like loving the energy. We see Maria, you have amazing energy. But Letitia, how often do you find your clients that way? What is your rate? Like, do you get more from your query pile, your slush pile, mm -hmm. or do you get more clients from just going out and doing the one-on-ones? Okay. Before the pandemic, right, hit, and I was only able to attend maybe a couple of writing conferences. Most of my projects I extracted from my usual submission channels. And I have various ones. So my agency has been running for 15 years. So in that amount of time, I've created a reputation. And so I constantly get submissions through my agency. Also, I'm a longstanding member of Publishers Marketplace. And then I've also been featured in the last two editions of Jeff Herman's Guide to Agents, Publishers, and Literary Agents. So I would get really good submissions mm. from that pool as well. And on top of that, I am an in-house literary agent for a branding and marketing company that develops book proposals, book ideas for high-profile CEOs, entrepreneurs, religious leaders, doctors, pro athletes, anybody who's wanting to build a brand by publishing a book. So I also get from that channel as well. So I ha always have an overwhelming influx of submissions. But when the pandemic hit, I started getting all these invitations to do all these writing conferences. I think I did 10 last year, and I'm scheduled to do another 10 this year. And so more recently, I have been signing people that I've met at these conferences. And that's so interesting, too, because I feel like speaking about your work and writing are such different skills, like how writing a query letter and writing your pages are such different skills. Maria, how in the world did you get both? <laughs> well, you know what? I have a great team behind me. You can't be good at everything. You really can't. And I knew what my strengths were, and I knew what my weaknesses were. And that's a big reason why I asked Ruthie to uh, come into this project mm -hmm. with me, because I knew that 
her strengths were my weaknesses and my strengths were her weaknesses. So oh, yeah. I, when it comes to the Excel, go Maria. <laughs> I hate Excel. You know, it seems like that. She'll, she'll track where I don't want to. I'm definitely the grammar overseer between us. Do that kind of editing. But the back and forth between us is so strong. And we never had a bad minute. We just don't. No. We both, we're willing to discuss our strengths and weaknesses. We welcome feedback and constructive criticism. And just finding someone like that is rare, period, just as a friend, let alone the person you're working with. But we do divide it. And she's a strong speaker. I have no problem speaking, but she does it beautifully. So I go, Maria. <laughs> That's how we do. I do feel that they do have really great chemistry together, and that's something hard to find. What I really appreciate about them is that they are two distinct individuals, but yet they were able to keep the voice singular, and that's important. When there's more than one author involved, and the trick is to making that voice sound authentic and only one voice. So that just shows you how in sync they are and how great that their writing is in harmony. And that's because they have the great chemistry. Oh, I love that. I was researching the restaurant. <laughs> I want to read this kind of review I heard. Prepare to spend some time at Prima Donna just perusing the menu. Quite possibly the longest we've ever seen outside a restaurant. The dishes featuring pasta, veal, chicken, and seafood. Precisely three options. All Chop House classics are available for the rare Pittsburgher who doesn't like Italian. But we think it would be hard to pass up prima donna's many variations on traditional Italian-American mm -hmm. themes. Some of them red sauce restaurant classics like Beata. Mm -hmm. Others more homestyle offerings like spaghetti with sausage made from sausage from a couple of doors down, of course. So tell us about the food writing element of this nonfiction piece. It makes you really hungry and <laughs> it... <laughs> It's also was not great for the pandemic because then I started to eat so much more and then you start following these other foodies and you see what they're posting and then, oh, it's really bad. But I loved it because for me, it brought back an enormous amount of nostalgia. The restaurant was born based upon the fact that my family are Italian immigrants that came into this country and started from the ground up. And my dad was an entrepreneur that really left a stable income as a postal worker and left it all on the line, moved to this dying, corrupt town that actually the space had another Italian restaurant that was failing at the time. And so whenever he came in, things were not looking good for him to be successful, but he took those basics of mm -hmm. the food that we grew up with and was able to capitalize on the marketing and really welcoming people and making everybody, no matter whether you were Tommy Lasorda or whether you were just somebody off the street, feel special and welcome. He turned eating food into a dining experience. And it was really fun to write about the food aspects because again, having worked there for so long, you take a lot of this for granted. And then once it goes away, you forget. And then as we started writing about it, 
thinking, oh, man, I can just taste that. Yeah. Even thinking about it, like the bread on the table, the olive oil, the the homemade pasta, it sounds just like a really amazing setting for an amazing character. And then things went wrong. So we're going to want to read the book to find out exactly what happened. But yeah, really fascinating. Was that your favorite element to write from the book? Or was there another piece that you liked better than that? Ruthie, what do you think? Oh, that's really a hard question. Although I did love writing about the food. It's also food that I ate for all the years the restaurant was open. And it's all, I wish they had the biggest pink Venezuelan shrimp I've ever seen. And I've traveled a lot. I've never seen or tasted anything like it. Just really fantastic food at an affordable price. So that part was fun. It also was fun when we had some fantastic reviews like Mike Kalina the food critic Mm -hmm. would write such a good review and then okay here are two pages I'm just putting right in from the newspaper so that was fun the book was equally enjoyable Mm -hmm. except for a few touchy things at first I think we need to say more about maybe both Marie and I felt a little bit like we were pushing it maybe further than Joe wanted to go but he evolved and I think he Ultimately, over the last year, especially felt better about opening up and just telling the good and the bad about it. So it was all enjoyable. I've only read the proposal so far, and it is a really very strong proposal, longer than most that I'm accustomed to getting. But what I think they really did a great job at was not only bringing the food to life, but the characters that frequent the restaurant. It really reminded me of Cheers of Sam's bar. That's what the prima donna is. It's like a a reincarnation of the whole sheer scenario. And we all know how popular that was. So So it was a community too. Mm -hmm. Yes, For sure. But what I wanted to say about the writing sounding like one voice, that got easier as we decided to write in Joe's voice. Because he's a bigger than life person. He just is. If you see any clips and you just, if you heard his voice, there's a depth and a huskiness and a sincerity to his voice. So once we said we're going to write in Joe's voice, it was a lot easier. In fact, he said there are times where you don't know the exact words. He could tell a story from recollection, but doesn't remember his exact words. So even if I put them in, he'd say, I can't tell what was you and what was me. You really have my voice. <laughs> so That was fun. So Maria, it made me so happy when you sent that email saying you were jumping around like a game show contestant. Could all of you talk about the call and how you knew it was the right fit? Sure. I waited for the call because Leticia and I met back in February and she did tell me, be patient with me. There's a lot going on right now. And I knew at that moment that I wanted to have her as my agent. Whenever we were on the Zoom call, and I was pitching to her, it was more, we were sitting like old friends talking, not, I need to prove myself worthy to this person. And she just got the concept just right off the bat. I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Leticia, but you looked at me and you said, I'm so excited about this. And my heart just dropped because I felt it whenever somebody is just saying it and whenever they're feeling it. And I felt it. I felt a very strong connection with her. So for me, it seems a little too much like a fairy tale because she was our top choice and we got our top choice. (laughs) And it took a while, but 
we didn't stop. We didn't wait Mm -hmm. while she was busy kind of reviewing other things. We just kept on going and we got feedback. We were able to do some consultations with Manuscript Academy. Strangely enough, somebody that we did a consultation with actually knew Leticia and was friendly with her. So that was really a funny conversation because she said, you must have a lot of interest in this. Who is your top agent? And I said, well, it's actually Leticia Gomez from Savvy Literary. And she said, get out of town. (laughs) (laughs) She said, I love her. So we were constantly working on how do we make this more marketable? And also a great part of nonfiction is your platform. So we started literally from nothing. This restaurant has been closed for 20 years. My dad went to prison. He disappeared and that was it. And then he's had a lot of health challenges. So he has not been out of the public for a very long time. So we knew we wanted to go the traditional publishing route. So what we did was we started a Facebook fan page for the restaurant. And it started just as a way to memorialize the restaurant, to talk a little bit about the way that things used to be. And it evolved from that to something that it is today. We now have 30,000 people that visit it monthly and we share recipes. And if you want to get a little sense of what Joseph Costanzo Jr. is like, he gets on and he does his little words of wisdom. Talking to entrepreneurs about what it means to be successful. We do giveaways. We have little Italian memes. We have a segment that's coming up called A Walk Down Memory Lane, which actually Leticia is going to use too for some live testimonials of some notable people that came through the restaurant store. We're constantly evolving. We're constantly thinking of how do we make this more marketable? What else can we do? What more can we do? And whenever we think that we've done everything, we ask more people for advice. What do you think? What else could we do? And we work on that. So we are our own best and worst enemies, I I would say, (laughs) because we just don't stop. Joe's strength was his marketing. That book could be a marketing primer. It's amazing. So Maria's his daughter. Two of my sons are in marketing. One owns a marketing agency. The other's a marketer. So we think marketers, both of us. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think we often hear people are like, I don't want to be on Twitter, but I'm going to try to raise my Twitter following. Or "I, I don't love having to be out there every day on Instagram. But what you guys did is you went directly to the source, the people that loved your restaurant, and you just built something there. And it's just so simple because they're going to help create the content. Mm-hmm. I was going through grandma's drawers. Here's a picture of us there at their anniversary. And it's a joyous thing. And I think that's what makes this so interesting. Like the slice of Americana from a point of view that people really care about. And, and I think it's timely now because the restaurant industry has really taken a hit with the pandemic. And like uh, Jessica said, they became communities where you didn't go because you just didn't want to cook at home. You went because you wanted to be around certain people. You wanted to be in a certain atmosphere. It was a, a great dine out experience, entertainment. And that's what we've missed in the last year since the pandemic, that kind of just went away for a long time. In that sense, I see it as a nostalgic book about the times when restaurants were strong staples in the community and the people who owned it. 
Yeah, there's almost a theatrical element too, mm-hmm. the way they talk about front of house, back of house, mm-hmm. everything's choreographed. And it's just so interesting to know that you can go out and have almost a real life interactive community experience that way. Something we've all missed in the past year. If I may, on the day that we heard from Leticia, I was in the car when Maria <laughs> called me and I cried. I just cried. I didn't expect to. I didn't expect to at all. I just cried so hard. My husband was driving and looking at me. Are you okay? Yes. <laughs> but he told me she had the same reaction too when she opened the email. And that was funny that we both had a hard cry and didn't expect it. But it was just years and thousands of hours into it. So when that really clicks, and again, we were hoping, and, and there was interest from some other people. And we would say, well, I hope they don't, because we still would rather have Latisse. You know? so it, it really was a great thing. Well, I have to apologize to Ruby and to Maria for taking so long. It's just that they had caught me when I was negotiating like three book deals at the same time. And I wasn't really fully ready to make the commitment, but I kept thinking to myself, somebody's going to come and snatch them away. And I can't let that happen. So I am going to carve out the time somehow because I don't want them to get away. And I'm sorry that I tortured you for as long as I did. That's okay. We kept revising. (laughs) (laughs) We did. And one of the things too, and I don't know if it drove Leticia crazy or not, but we kept her in the loop about what we were doing throughout the time that we were waiting. We weren't emailing her five times a day. Do not do that. Nobody wants to hear from you that much. But whenever there was something to say, if I would get a media interview, I would always just send her a little note. Hey, we were just interviewed in such magazine, or I was on XYZ podcast. Just wanted to share with you hoping that you're having a great day and that you're well. And that's it because we just didn't want her to forget. We wanted to keep on reminding her that we were thinking about her and that we were also not waiting because nobody's going to do this for you. If you want this to be your journey, you got to step up and you got to be willing to get dirty and you got to be willing to really put in a lot of hard work and people are going to tell you that you can't do it. And they're going to tell you that maybe the writing's not quite there yet, or the idea is not there for them, or something doesn't resonate, but you have to feel so strongly about your project. And of course, you have to take constructive criticism. I'm not saying to, if somebody says that this element of your book needs help, that you ignore that. No, you really look and you try to see what they're seeing and you fix it. But you also have to believe in yourself more than anybody can believe in you. And I tell you why that approach worked was because it showed me that these two ladies were going to be proactive. Okay. They were going to be proactive and they were going to work with me as a team toward publication. Somebody can come in with the greatest book concept of all time. But if they're not willing, if, if they're going to be lazy and expect the agent to do everything, then I would say no. And that's one of the first things I got about Maria is that I knew she would be very pleasant to work with. I had not yet met Ruthie, but the same has turned out to be true about Ruthie, that these ladies, they're very hardworking and they're very pleasant to work with. And they have faith in me. If an author does not have faith in the agent, 
it's not going to work. So right from the get-go, I could see that these two ladies had a really strong faith in me. And so that moves me and encourages me to do the best job that I possibly can do for them. So that faith is reciprocated. Just in case, because I can feel people out there going, oh, I will email an agent every day to show them I'm proactive. (laughs) Where is that line? No, like Maria said, she did not do it every day. She did it, gosh, she didn't even do it that much. It was like a, every time she emailed, it was a breath of fresh air because it didn't happen that often. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. We always just want to clarify, just mm-hmm. in case somebody out there is thinking <laughs> that, that is the answer. Yeah. I mean, I would say if you have nothing new to say, then don't. But if you have something that you need to share, whether it's an aha moment or a revision, or if you've gotten, like I said, some media coverage, those would be reasons for me to reach out. And very brief, not pushy, not, I haven't heard from you yet, what's Mm -hmm. going on? No, just, I want to let you know what we're doing toward the publishing Mm -hmm. journey at this point, because in my mind... I wanted to be on her team. So if I'm going to be on her team, she's going to eventually need to know what I'm doing. So why wouldn't I keep her in the loop (laughs) now? That was my thought. So the two of you seem to work amazingly well together. What tips do you have for people working with the (laughs) co-author? It's just, it doesn't even matter if it's a co-author, just treasuring the people in your life and treating them accordingly. Just the golden rule, do unto others or approach others the way you'd want to be approached. And there's an incredible amount of trust between us. When Michael Jackson was going to have that great concert, This Is It, the documentary, when he'd correct, he'd always say, with love, with love. So if I had a good grammar issue, I'd say, Maria, with love. And then I'd just say whatever it was, and then we'd laugh. And that's all there is to it. I don't know. It's one of my my favorite relationships in my life is my friendship with Maria. And I also don't feel an age difference. I don't feel like her teacher and she was a kid or anything. She's just my friend. It took a while for me to get there. I don't even think I would call her Ruthie until maybe about three or four years ago, whenever we were talking on the phone so often. And she kept on telling me, just call me Ruthie, just call me Ruthie. I'm like, I can't do that. It's just a little sacrilegious to me, but I'll get there. But I think that one of the most important things is that, as Ruthie was saying, you honor the people that you're working with and that are part of your team. If one of us succeeds, we all succeed. If one of us fails, we all fail. So whenever I was pitching this live, I was very clear with everybody that I pitched with, this is a co-authorship. It's myself and it is Ruthie Robbins. So you're either taking me and Ruthie or you're not. It's not just one or the other because I couldn't live with myself. We've done all of this work together. If somebody said, oh, I'll represent you, but I'm not going to represent her. That's unfair to me. That's a moral dilemma. And that's not a way to go about treating somebody the right way. I'm always kindness, treating people the right way first before anything else. And everything else will fall into place. I really do believe it. Karma is a, a huge part of my life. 
and the right agent wouldn't ask you to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, do you guys, so I, I know you have no news yet, but are, do you have your next steps in place? I'll start first and then I'll let uh, Ruby and Maria chime in. The summertime is a very relaxed time in the publishing industry. A lot of people are on vacation. So because I feel this is such a great project, I didn't want to risk submitting it in the summertime and letting it fall through the cracks with some of the editors. We have already received preliminary uh, interest thanks to Maria and early legwork. And so we're very optimistic about that. But right now, I think Ruthie is doing another review of the manuscript, making some uh, final revisions, and then we'll be sending it to me. And then it'll be time for the girls to kick back a little bit because they've been working hard. Maybe they want to relax a little bit while I get things ready for the submission process. Over the summer, too, we've also been working on getting some video testimonials of some more well-known folks who came into the restaurant. So that has been really fun for me. I've got to interview lots of sports stars, celebrities, folks like that, and we're still working on more. So that's what we have up our sleeve as well, in addition to revising. And then there's always a couple of little stories that slip by us that we find one way or another. So a couple of just surface that we're working on to weave into the manuscript as well. Could you give us the short version of one of those stories? (laughs) Sure. I mean, I'll talk about the duck story, Ruthie. (laughs) The other one's a little too complicated. So knowing that McKee's Rocks was this tough mill town, McKee's Rocks was not a place for a nationally recognized restaurant. If you're from Pittsburgh, it's an area outside of the city that you may wanna just avoid. There's really nothing there aside from the prima donna. One of my dad's old customers just called me recently and he told me about a story that's really cute. Basically, right before the restaurant opened on a Saturday night, the restaurant was on Broadway Avenue, just like New York City and Dorman Street was the cross street. It was right there on the corner. And people would line up on Broadway starting at, I don't know, 3, 3.30 for four o'clock opening to get into the restaurant because there were no reservations whatsoever. And as the restaurant evolved, the clientele was more and more folks that were not natively from McKee's Rocks. They were coming from other areas to McKee's Rocks just to specifically come to the restaurant. And they were dressed in ways that people from McKee's Rocks would not be in suits and ties and dresses and and such. So that one afternoon, everybody was lined up to go to the restaurant. This particular customer was having a little trouble with his wife and she had stormed out and went shopping. He went to the next door watering hole and he was drinking with his friends. And so she passed by in her car and he saw her. So he ran out and his little pet name for her was duck. So he ran out on the street duck (laughs) and everybody that was lined up down Broadway hit the sidewalk because (laughs) they they thought there was gunfire or some sort of street fight or something to watch out for. And 
Of course, my dad, who always wanted people to have this wonderful experience, ran out. He was so mad at this customer. <laughs> Why would you do that? And let everybody in early and the fried zucchini and drinks flowed and had to calm everybody's nerves. There's no reason to duck. It's safe. Everybody's okay. That was just his pet name for oh, his no. wife. Like, <laughs> it's that all good. good. <laughs> That's a good story. That's amazing. Maybe we could close it out with each of you giving your best advice for writers. Uh, I can go first. So yes, I think with narrative nonfiction, the reason it's called that is because it's nonfiction that reads like a novel. And this is what On the Rocks does. So if you're going to be writing narrative nonfiction, you really need to read a lot of fiction as well. And there's got to be a really great balance between the narrative and the dialogue. Narrative nonfiction is usually heavy on dialogue. And the reason it's that way, because if it gets adapted into film and television, it just makes that adaptation a lot easier. There's several different categories that you can write in narrative nonfiction. You can write historical narrative nonfiction. One of my authors that has done amazingly well and is in the process of being turned into a major theatrical release is a book called Madam President about the story of Edith Wilson and how she really was the first female president because when Woodrow Wilson had a stroke and was unable to fulfill his duties, she stepped in and took over, but she did it steinly. So not a lot of people know that she actually did run the country for a couple of years, but it's, this, it's her story. So that's a good example of historical narrative nonfiction. A good example of contemporary narrative nonfiction is On the Rocks. Okay. There's also, there's narrative nonfiction. You can write about any topic on, you know, health. One of the things that we want to do with On the Rocks is position it as pop culture because it is pop culture in a sense, because you have all of these people that Maria is, is interviewing. So the reason we did those videos is to bring in that pop culture, give it a pop culture feel to it. Narrative nonfiction is a very good genre to write in. My best advice to writers, I'll use an Olympic analogy you're running a marathon, you're not running a sprint. So however long you think it's going to take, you double it or you triple <laughs> it <laughs> because it will take that long. And for somebody that is a little impatient like myself, it's a little hard to swallow, mm. but that's just the way that the industry works. You can take a deep breath and realize that you've done nothing wrong. People will be getting back to you. You just have to be patient because grit and resiliency in publishing and in life, in my opinion, it pays off. Yeah. Slow and steady wins the publication race. <laughs> um, Ruthie, did you have any final tips for writers? We actually wrote for about two years before we started the proposal, Maria, I think. But these little pieces about the proposal, about finding an agent, about getting professional critique on our proposal, things like that are wonderful to be able to do through Manuscript Academy, writers' conferences, things like that. I have to say, we'd have trouble with those pieces if we hadn't gotten some advice like that. So I'd say, go ahead and write. And if you're comfortable, if you need that kind of advice for the writing too, it's out there. We were okay with the writing, but when it came to the publishing process, we did rely on several opportunities like that. And I would just add too, also, you can be very targeted if you use Manuscript Academy and the consultations. 
What I did is I took the feedback that we were getting from agents that was consistent and potentially negative, and I asked them, how do I turn this into something that is positive? And it was through one of those conversations that one of our revisions was done because we kept on getting feedback. This might be a little bit too regional. And the editor that we met with, she said, no, this is every man's story. This is the American dream of an underdog. And once that clicked, it was so much easier to write that narrative. And she also helped us in saying, here are some other comps that you should think about. At first, we were really focused on these celebrity chef, celebrity restaurant tours. And she said, no, there's this book and this book that are about these small little businesses that turned into national icons. Mm -hmm. And that is more of what your story is. You're not Gordon Ramsay. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're actually something much more. And whenever we heard that, again, another light bulb moment. So you never know what's going to come from meeting one-on-one -on -one and the Manuscript Academy consultations. To us, it's been invaluable. So we thank both Julie and Jessica for starting this and having this resource available for writers. I, I don't know what we would have done without it. We wouldn't have been here for sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you for saying that. You guys, we didn't ask them to say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there was like something when you were talking, I just have that warm feeling of that's exactly it, right? It's like you have your idea, but since you're so close to it, by looking at it from just that other angle, it can open up this whole other piece that can make the difference. And that's what's fascinating about art in general and writing and opinions. Don't take everyone's opinion, but when it hits you like that, it can change everything. So it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys. This is so fun. I cannot wait to watch this show. I can't wait to <laughs> read this book. And I'm gonna, I'm actually going to have spaghetti meatballs tonight. If you go on the Facebook, there are a lot of recipes. Yeah, I just did. I saw your dad. Yeah. And it was like so amazing, such an amazing concept. Congratulations, everybody. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for having us, ladies. Yes. This was so wonderful. As soon as you said that you were jumping around like a game show contestant, I loved the energy of that email mm -hmm. and I couldn't help but be happy for you. <laughs> and thanks for being so positive on the journey too. I know I've emailed you guys a couple of times to ask you little questions and you get back and it's just wonderful to know that somebody else is out there that's essentially on your side. It's really such a nice service that, that you all do. So thank you. It's always our goal to be a real person, like how you couldn't Google, who is the best comp for my book? Is it Gordon Ramsay? Or, and it feels like it, it could be a subtle shift of seeing it from celebrity chef to relatable American dream. But you need a person to tell you. Yes, absolutely. And so we always want to be human and available and a person versus a Google. Well, when your book is out, we want to do a giveaway and give some copies away. So please let us know when that happens. Please share your future good news with us. Let us know how it's going. Maybe we'll have a celebratory uh, Zoom meeting. Yes. <laughs> Another Zoom show <laughs> celebrating the release of the book or the sale of the book. We would love that. <laughs> okay. Thank that you. That would be awesome. Excellent. Right. Thanks so much for the invite. We've had such a lovely time. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.